Russia's much vaunted new offensive started without huge fanfare and seems to have petered out with little tangible success, but unimaginable scale of losses. This is nowhere more apparent than in the attritional meat grinder confrontations around Bakhmut, Avdivka, and Vrugledar. To win outright or initiate negotiations to end the war, Ukraine will have to avoid the same failures with its expected spring offensive. Can Ukraine surprise the world, and more importantly, the Russian high command, with bold and decisive gains? Has the offensive already begun? And is Russia gearing up for the most catastrophic round of conscription yet, with the rollout of electronic conscription in the major urban centres, not just in the provinces this time, or through marginalised ethnic minorities? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help people find our fantastic speakers. And if you enjoy the content, do please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Robin Horsfall joined the British Army at the age of 15 in 1972. He served with the Parachute Regiment and 22nd Special Air Service. He left the British Army in 1984 and worked as a mercenary, bodyguard, and as a medical officer in um, many active war zones around the world. He then built London Karate for 20 years, teaching thousands the art and discipline of karate. He retired and went to Surrey University aged 56 and graduated in English literature and creative writing three years later. He's the author of several books, including the hugely successful autobiography, Fighting Scared, which I highly recommend you read. And of course, as always, we will put links to his website and to uh, his books in the description of the video. Now, Robin, before we begin, I should say this is the third time that I've been privileged to welcome you onto the channel. And it seems that we have some extraordinary timing here because the Ukrainian Spring Offensive has officially been announced that it has actually begun um, literally in the last uh, day or two. Yeah, um, it is interesting timing because just before that announcement, I announced it. <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time uh, looking at the general situation and looking at all the outlets that set, put, put information out about what's going on in Ukraine. I have a few personal contacts actually on the front there in Ukraine and um, they contact me frequently. But um, it does appear that um, recently they have been taking out the radar and logistical systems and supply dumps and transport systems uh, in Zaporizhia, in the Oblast. And um, it looked to all intents and purposes that that was going to be the axis of attack. Um, there have been a large number of, uh, well, a large number, several assaults along that front over the last 48 hours, and they've been fairly strong and successful. Now, they could be reconnaissance in strength, um, but they're looking for a weakness. They're looking to identify a uh, focal point where they can concentrate their forces, because in terms of manpower, Ukraine cannot um, defeat Russia on the basis of a broad front. Assault. They have to find a weakness, concentrate their forces, and um, push directly through on a very narrow front, opening up the Russian defences, getting behind them, destroying their headquarters and logistic routes behind, 
and then uh, causing a great deal of disarray and hopefully a defeat so that they can take over large portions of the territory and perhaps even force the uh, Russian military into a collapse and a general retreat. And, um, and that that's what we all wish for. <laughs> I think, yes, we're, we're, well, most people are hoping for that. I mean, there are others, we'll come to those later, who seem to have another agenda. But this idea of a full frontal attack, I mean, obviously, I, I know very little uh, about military strategy, but what I've learned over the last few months is that your ratios go down when you are the attacking force rather than the defending force. And yeah. despite Russian disorganisation, poor equipment, uh, poor motivation, um, Ukraine has to be very careful, doesn't it, not to significantly erode the, you know, more advantageous ratios they've had uh, in terms of the number of people they lose compared to the Russians. Yeah, they have to they have to be far more careful with the use of their forces, uh, especially their manpower. But what's happened in the last 14 months is the technological ability of Ukraine has improved as the West has provided higher and higher levels of uh, military technology. And they are using that to very good effect. Um, so um, the, the statistics usually show that you are going to lose three times as many men in offense as you do in defense. So for 14 months, Ukraine has been in defense and the Russians have probably taken far more than a three to one loss, more likely to be a 10 to one loss. Um, the Ukrainian forces have received extra training. They've got Patriot missiles now. They've got long-range HIMARS. They've got all sorts of them. They've, they've been donated the most advanced technologies that are available from the Western powers. And they've got to use this carefully and specifically to overcome the Russian manpower advantage. Um, Russia's mobilizing again. They are trying to um, bring even more people into the frame, but economically, that's very, very uh, difficult to sustain because the more of the um, people they draft into their armed forces, the weaker their economy is going to be, the less skilled people, the less capable people they're going to have in their factories to produce munitions. So it's a short-term uh, view. And um, the, the military strategists know this, and they know that if they can maintain... Um, the supply routes to Ukraine, the high technology to Ukraine, and um, and keep Ukraine powerful and strong and united with the West, then Russia will collapse. And there's been an interesting development as well, hasn't there, in terms of leadership? Because with all this Western uh, technology, with the huge amount of training and the passing on of NATO techniques, um, there's the risk as well that Ukraine would be given very solid advice and feel incumbent to follow that advice. But they haven't always done that. So they were advised not to hold on to Bakhmut. Um, <coughs> they've hold, held on there when so many people were predicting that that would be to their disadvantage. And they seem to have turned that into a to call it a meat grinder, I think, is is true, but it's been far more disadvantageous to the Russians um, and it's boosted Ukrainian morale against the advice, I believe, of many American uh, sort of experts. Um, and even though Solidar fell and Vugledar, they also extracted enormous losses out of the Russians um, in that sort of attritional defence. 
yeah, I'm not. I'm, I think that um, an awful lot of experts um, have voiced their opinion online and um, and said what was sensible and what to expect. I'm not sure that's the same advice they've been given by senior military generals at the highest levels in the USA and in Western Europe. And it's my feeling that it's quite possible that they were advised to fix the Russian forces in those areas while they prepared for their counteroffensive. Um, and they've done that enormously successfully with a huge amount of courage um, in those areas you've just outlined, Bakhmut being the most um, the one most people know about. Um, and it, it also appears that the most aggressive and dangerous um, soldiers is a word I wouldn't use for the mercenaries of Wagner Group um, have been virtually wiped out in Bakhmut. And so they're, they're no longer a force to be seriously reckoned with. They now need the support of regular Russian conscripted forces. So fixing the Russian armed forces in Donbass in the east um, is actually keeping those, um, those assets there while and weakening the south, which looks it looks as if it's going to be an advance to Melitopol and to the Dnipro River. Um, that looks like the axis, but the Ukrainians are great at the being deceptive. They're great chess players, and um, who knows? Uh, that might not be the case, but it it does look strongly like that's the best thing to do. Um, ben Hodges has said uh, that you, that Crimea is the key to victory, um, and he explains very clearly why. Um, he says you can. You can loot, you can fight, you can defy and defeat all the Russian forces in Donbass, and it won't win you the war. But if you take Crimea, it will. So it does look like that's probably going to be what we're going to see over the next two to three months. And in geographical terms, there are a number of obstacles to achieving that goal, aren't there? First of all, you have to uh, get a foothold on the right bank of the Dnipro, which is reputedly apparently that was already starting to happen but uh, to, to open up a broad front there that's quite tricky to to cross that sort of riverfront and then the geography of Crimea itself represents all sorts of of challenges historically doesn't it um with very yeah. marshy land which is almost impenetrable and then a very narrow sort of bottleneck which yeah. there's no element of surprise there i mean you come by sea there's there's probably huge logistical challenges to doing that on the land side, you're, you've got very limited options. Yeah, I, um, they don't need to cross the deep road to um, to advance in Zaporizhia and take Zaporizhia Oblast, and then they can then they can turn west and um, perhaps clear the rest of the south the south of the river because it would it would isolate that area. Crimea is a far more complicated story for lots and lots of reasons. Uh, militarily, that Ismuth which is only about 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers wide, um, if you include the um, tidal areas, is very difficult for any army to cross because it concentrates you and it can be easily defended. The other side of Crimea is that because of certain population changes over the last, uh, since 2014, but even before that, the majority of the population uh, are Russian speaking, something like 60, 64%. And that makes it a far more difficult place to hold with the support of the people. Um, 
And it's just my feeling that it might be the plan to isolate Crimea, not to actually invade it, to get to the Izmuth, to close the Kerch Bridge, and then to cut off the water supply to Crimea again. And if they do that, it's very difficult for the population there that are pro-Russian to sustain themselves. Um, they can't grow food, they can't get supplies, they can't, the, the uh, land bridge will be cut off um, because of the, if they manage to advance um, to the uh, Sea of Azov. And so consequently, you know, it's, um, it's going to, that, that, that seems to be a very, very likely strategic move. Don't take Crimea, just, see, just put it under siege essentially. Cut it off, and then give the options perhaps of a semi-independent Crimea, uh, but it, but but not a Russian Crimea. Who knows? We saw that earlier in the year, didn't we? Um, when they took out sort of the railway line and they took out one side of the carriageway, we saw a huge exodus of yeah. of of Russians um, who highly suggestive you know they're not they're not staying to fight in a patriotic manner they don't necessarily they understand that this isn't necessarily their ancestral land or something they're going to fight with all of their sort of heart and soul they sort of many fled and i guess the ukrainians could do that again they could take out half of the kirch bridge and that would uh, allow a huge exodus of as you say those um those sympathetic perhaps to Russia. And I think you touched on a, on a really important nuance here, which Ukrainians would, would, would be screaming at the screen that we have to mention is that, you know, that composition wasn't always the case. And in fact, from the 1940s onwards and from 2014 as well, a huge number of Ukrainians or Ukrainian sympathetic to Ukraine, as well as the Crimea Tatars, They've been forced out. So the population spread you see at the moment is not the historic population of Crimea. No. There's about 24% of the population of Tatars and um, the rest um, have been imported. Mm. Um, but just because, I want to emphasize as well, just because the people are Russian-speaking doesn't necessarily mean they're pro-Russian. They're, they're, they're Crimean, they're formerly Ukrainian, and they don't like the idea of coming under... Um, the the type of government that uh, now exists in Russia, um, they wouldn't know where they belonged. Um, the freedoms of human beings are being reduced almost daily under the Putin government now. And where will that lead? Will it lead to the collapse of Russia, which is another um, concern for the Western governments? Because I don't think the Western governments want to see Russia collapse. They want to see Putin collapse and they want to see his troops go home. But the collapse of Russia as a nation were, is, is a very, very fragile possibility that um, can disrupt it, it, the economics and um, the systems that exist in the whole world. Very dangerous. I mean, that, that to my mind, and, and sort of delving into it, is um, another fallacy almost in that preserving aspects of the current system out of fear of what might happen will probably in a generation lead to another Putin, if not the replacement of Putin being someone similar. I, I kind of personally suspect that there needs to be some systemic fragmentation of Russia in order to build up 
something new from the ground up because uh, a top-down solution is just going to lead to the same imperialism, the same lies, the same you know weaponized mythologies. But as you say, the risk is 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 enormous, um, mm. as history shows. You think of that huge landmass, and I I've taken this figure out of my memory now, but I think that their population is about 160 million. You know, which is like two European countries, two West European countries. Um, that's it. That's their that's their entire population for that huge landmass. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, where, where would it where would it go if, if that collapsed? I mean, we saw the collapse of Iraq um, because there wasn't um, there wasn't a full understanding of what you do after a war and, uh, with with an existing government, how important it is to retain it. Um, so. Yeah, I think there'll be a tendency for a lot of uh, political strategists to say, look, we don't want to destroy Russia. We just want Russia to go home. And if they can achieve that, then um, uh, that, that, that will be something that will be something that uh, maybe people say, oh, yes, well, they're terribly evil and wicked and they're wrong. And, um, but uh, better the devil, you know. Yes. No, that that uh, that's been a guiding principle of a lot of foreign policy, hasn't it, for for, for many centuries? Mm. Um, and you know, one point you 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 um, sort of alluded to there is what might cause that fragmentation. And something we mentioned in the intro to this video is a significant changes rolling out as we speak in Russia. Um, Advertise uh, adverts have gone out. And apparently are on every channel. They're on billboards. They're on the so-called uh, Z propaganda channels. They're on, um, you know, channels of the so-called turbo patriots on Telegram or whatever. But this is a series of adverts aimed at not just, um, you know, the Russian provinces, not aimed at conscription of ethnic minorities who are amongst the most impoverished and repressed. They are now seeking to get a huge influx of conscripts from the urban centers and of course for good reason they haven't wanted to do this before because if anything's going to ferment or force russians to finally um you know pick a side or take some kind of action if only to save their own skins it is conscription in the more educated urban centers but it seems that putin is 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 now going down that route and if the ukrainian spring offensive starts to show some success the pressure for all-out conscription will only increase. Yeah, um, conscription. Um, and, I mean, what we've got now in Russia is we've got a dictatorship. Uh, Putin's law. Putin's law is Russia. Um, he's surrounded by his sycophants and he controls the police and he controls the military. But... Um, at some point, the casualties that the military are taking is going to um, is going to have a backlash. It's all red. Some of those signals are already showing with soldiers turning around, but they still believe that these um, being sent to the front without training is a mistake. <laughs> um, they're hoping they, they they still believe that it's everybody else's fault, but Vladimir Putin's. Um, Putin. Um, I think perceives himself as a new Stalin. He's not worried about deaths. He's not worried about his people. He's worried about, he wants Russia to be a, a great empire, um, a new Soviet Union again. And um, 
there are so many signals that Putin as well is on chemotherapy, that he's sick. I mean, the signs are there. We don't know that. Um, but having experienced chemotherapy myself, it um, they, they talk about brain fog, chemo fog. And it does affect your brain. You, 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 you make bad decisions. You can't remember what's going on. You can't read a book. You can't concentrate. Um, and if he is suffering from cancer, then that's going to make him even more impatient, almost uh, similar in style to somebody who's suffering from dementia, frustrated, upset, angry. And he's isolated himself over the past few years as well. So um, I, doubt his, I doubt his competence to make sensible decisions. Hopefully people around him will manage to persuade him at some point that um, what he's doing and the pushing forward and carrying on uh, is unsustainable. I mean, for everything I've seen and heard, um, even from those who still have some connections inside Russia and in, say the sort of, uh, you know, FSB, uh, by all accounts, that there, there, there is no mechanism anymore to relay those messages. And, um, you know, you saw that at the start of the war with, uh, you know, the head of the security services who was berated publicly by Putin. Yeah. I think no one, you know, no one, uh, first of all, the system um, promotes non-entities and sycophants mm -hmm. and people who do not have the imagination um, yeah. or, dare I say, you know, the balls to speak out. Um and as the Stalinist sort of terror intensifies, then, you know, those sort of timid characteristics just come to the fore. So I don't think that's going to be a way out. I don't think anyone will talk truth to power um, yeah. at all. I agree. Um, what has to happen first is there has to be a military victory. And a military victory will undermine its authority. And um, at some point, a general... Um, will turn and say, no, that's enough, and we're, we're going to step in here, and there will be some sort of coup. But there has to be military victory first. Um, without that, there, 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 isn't, there isn't going to be enough um, power behind anybody to, uh, to follow it through. And so um, that's, that's the first priority of Ukraine and the West. And then once you punch the bully on the nose, then he'll talk but not before. And I suspect the lesson from the First World War and seeing the collapse of the political system, which led to the downfall of the Tsar, the first thing that had to happen was the collapse of the morale of the army. So widespread uh, revolts, widespread um, units sort of disbanding or going rogue or disappearing into the woods. So I, I suspect the same will be the case here, will be that sort of collapse of order uh, on the front line, I mean, front line units, and um, one source I like to listen to is a Russian journalist called Michael Naki, um, and he has a, a military expert called Ruslan Lviv, and they they do sort of daily commentary on the war. And one of the things they were talking about today, and I, I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on this as, as as someone who knows about the sort of cohesion of you know group groups of men in a fighting situation. What's happening now is that the Spetsnaz units, the really sort of highly trained troops have lost up to 80% of their skilled and experienced men. And until recently, the tactic was to have human meat, as it were, waves of human meat, which is the conscripts thrown at the front lines, soften up the Ukrainians, wear down their, their ammo and strength, 
and then you send in more experienced troops. Apparently that is now falling apart because they do not have enough experienced troops left. So you have units of raw conscripts with the few experienced all jumbled up together and being thrown into the, the melee at the same time. Is is that going to work or is that a recipe for a collapse? Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard and read that that opinion several times. The other thing to take in, in consideration as a kind of counterpoise to that, though, is that they, they now have people that have been involved and engaged in combat for up to 14 months. So that gives them um, a foundation of experienced troops. The survivors have, have become the experienced troops. Previous to that, um, although they had trained soldiers, they hadn't seen an awful lot of action. They hadn't been in combat. But yes, they have lost an awful lot of their professional soldiers, um, and that, that weakens them. But they're replacing them with the survivors of the last 14 months. So their experience is growing, which is another important reason to try and achieve this military victory this year, rather than accepting the opinions of some people that this is going to go on and on and on. I often wonder where those opinions come from and which vested interests um, are putting that out, because sometimes it's um, I, I get the feeling that it's bought and paid for to undermine our morale at home. And that's that's the only point, isn't it? I mean, before we hit record, we were talking about the sources of voices, and I think you know you're you're watching a couple of hours of this a day. I'm listening to a couple of hours of this in 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 English and Russian on both sort of Russian opposition channels and on the Ukrainian channels, which often will ask the questions in Ukrainian, and then they'll have the guests talking in Russian. So it's got a an odd kind of experience, um, but. You do start to get a sense of tuning in to when someone is saying something likely to be accurate, and, and maybe you have to listen to them on numerous occasions to get a real sense of that. But when someone says something out of whether it be ignorance or whether they are repeating a narrative they've clearly got from somewhere else, it sort of starts to stand out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? It does, it does. and that, that's on both sides. It's not just Russian propaganda out there. There's a Ukrainian propaganda out there as well. Um, but if you if you listen to and watch um, these particular outlets, these particular media outlets over a period of time, you start to realise which ones are just putting out propaganda because there's no evidence to support it. There's no follow-up the next day. Nobody else is reporting what they claim has, has just happened. And um, and, you, and after a while, you start to um, realise which 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 ones are worth listening to, and you 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 push those to the side and start to get a, a far better picture um, and uh, and a much more efficient use of your time. But there are people, there are journalists, there are politicians in the Western world who seem to have another agenda, and I suspect that in some cases. That agenda is bought and paid for by Russian money. And I would go as so far as to suspect that certain extreme extreme people in the um, in the US Congress who are spouting uh, Russian propaganda directly to the people of the United States of America, I would actually ask, you know, show me them, show me where their money's come from and show me where their funding's come from, because it doesn't sound 
very American to me to be to be speaking out at this time in support of Vladimir Putin. And it, it's a really interesting point because the audience of this channel is around sort of 40% from the US. Mm. I think probably more than half of those uh, would class themselves as Republicans and quite a few would, would have that sort of label of, of MAGA, which is quite interesting. And it's quite heartening to find that actually the individuals watching this channel, um, they may sign up to sorts of things that, that, that you and I would not necessarily agree with, but we have found a common ground on Ukraine. Um, and it, it, it makes me wonder how something like uh, OAN and Fox News, which repeatedly uh, seem to repeat Russian uh, propaganda narratives, often very thinly disguised and veiled, and they're clearly pitching them at a Republican leading audience. And yet it does seem that in the grassroots, um, there is far more sympathy right across the American political spectrum. Uh, and the news in some way is distorting or not actually reflecting what uh, most people uh, actually seem to believe. Yeah, I, I think um, especially in the USA, but in Europe as well, um, it's it's viewing figures and the sale of product that is most important. And they've learned that using, uh, focus on people's base instincts of fear and jealousy and anger, anger sell more product than the actual truth. Um, there's a vast moral majority uh, in every moderate moral majority, MMMs, in every, uh, in every nation in Western powers, but they don't seem to have the voice in the national media um, because um, these media outlets, especially the private and professional ones, focus on extremism because extremism sells product. It gets people emotional. It gets them to press and click. You know, be scared of this, somebody will click on it. Somebody's going to come and steal your children, they'll click on it. And um, uh, we're all going to get bombed tomorrow, they'll click on it. And so they, they use fear as a way of selling product. And that's, that's quite sad because the people who talk the most sense, the most reasonable people in the world, uh, are having their voice stolen. And social media, to an extent... Uh, you know, the actual mechanics, the algorithms behind social media are essentially, uh, I would say they're sort of parasitic on those very qualities of of fear and terror. Um, the idea not of, uh, you know, to use a popular business term, but they're not built on the idea of abundance. They're built on the idea of scarcity. They're designed to, to tap into fairly primal fears because that gets people engaged, as you say, and that gets sort of clickbait. And having, you know, the Muscovite uh, in charge of, of Twitter, um, that has seen a significant degradation in that platform and a lot more troll activity, a lot more Russian narratives quite plainly on, on show, yeah. on that platform at least. Yeah, uh, MSM, you know, you'll see it every day, you know, and they'll, they'll hide beyond the question mark. Will Putin start a nuclear war? Are we all doomed? You know, will we will 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 we see the end of the century? You know, and, and so on. It's, it's hiding behind a question mark. They're not asking a question. They're making a statement. Uh, that frustrates me. But um, just something that came to mind. Well, uh, a little voice came into my head while you were talking there, and said, "Yeah." And here in the UK, we just recently had reports that there's a food shortage. It wasn't. There was a tomato shortage <laughs> for a week, but it became a food shortage in the media. 
oh, we're running out of food, you know, we're all going to starve. Oh, we're, you know, and that's that that's the type of impression that people are being fed constantly. And people mm. who are busy and working and getting on with their lives and looking after their kids and paying their bills, they'll get these little flashes 24 hours a day and they end up believing stuff that they, um, they have no, no way of supporting. And it's the same uh, it's the same system that's being used against people with their with their feelings about what's going on in Ukraine, and I do my absolute best to try and to try and front that and face it down and say no, um, this is what I believe is happening. Um, this is what you should be thinking. And when people do come out with these blatant lies and repeat them as questions, then I'll challenge them. Unfortunately, in the UK. Um, despite that, the majority of people seem to be, you know, um, behind the effort to support Ukraine um, till till the end to do what it what it takes. Um, and and let, let's turn to Ukraine because the Ukrainians themselves seem to be extraordinarily hardy and stoical and less, you know, receptive to these sort of hysterical messaging. That doesn't mean there aren't significant challenges on the horizon and. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to sort of turn the discussion to is what did Ukraine learn from the offensives in Kharkiv um, and uh, sort of retaking those sort of territories earlier in the year, Kherson as well. So even though they didn't have to, you know, in the end physically fight for it, their ability to soften up Russian supply lines made uh, the position in Kherson untenable. So what do you think they have learned over these 12 months that will be deployed in the spring offensive and hopefully you know cause it to be successful well i think that they they've learned that russia in many many aspects was a paper tiger um they weren't as good as they believed they were and when they were stood up to it quickly became apparent that um they were disorganized they had um a weak understanding of military science that their generals weren't capable of, of, ma- of running major operations. They were capable of bombing the hell out of civilians in Syria, but they weren't capable of doing anything on this scale with any with any with any sense. Um, their logistical system was poor. Their supply system was corrupt. Um, they were robbing themselves blind, and the um, the evidence of that became clear the more Ukraine stood up to them. And Ukraine also discovered. Um, that they could defeat them and they could stop them in their tracks. And over the last 14 months, this has given them an enormous amount of confidence with what's going to happen in the future. So when they do actually start to push forward with their offensive, they're going to not only be fighting for their for their own for their homeland, but they're going to believe wholeheartedly that they can win. And belief and morale in a war, as Napoleon said, is worth another army. And they have that. They believe they can defeat them. And Russia, the soldiers on the ground, I don't think they believe they can win. They're just hoping to survive long enough to go home. And when we last spoke, we were still in this mode where the Western powers were supplying Ukraine with equipment essentially to help them survive and hold the Russians at bay. Uh, six months on, do you think we have supplied them sufficiently enough to actually win? I don't think it'll ever be enough as far as Ukraine's concerned. They will always be demanding more and more and more. 
Um, and there's a limit to what um, especially European countries can supply because they have to retain enough for their own defence systems as well. Um, but I think everybody realises, everybody in Europe has realised that they're going to give as much as they possibly can. The USA are sending more than everybody else combined and they're doing a marvellous job. And um, it's not just a case of sending tanks. You have to send the technical teams. You have to have the maintenance teams to support that over a long period of time. Now, if they can't go into country, they have to train the maintenance teams and the technicians as well. Um, so all the support structures have to be there to go with those, those tanks, those advanced ammunitions, those aircraft and so on, which is in one way like why the West has leaned towards supplying leftover MiGs and SUs rather than um, supplying advanced um, advanced Western aircraft. And the other, the other thing as a slightly counterpoise again is that there's, um, there's going to be in some people's minds that they don't want to make Ukraine the most powerful military, military force uh, in Central Europe as well without uh, pulling them strongly into uh, a NATO, the NATO alliance as well. So that's going to be sitting in the back of people's minds. Um, Ukraine combined with Poland could be a, a, great, um, a great Central European power in their own right. Um, where's that going to leave Belarus? You know, um, that's, uh, that's another story too. That's another little distraction sitting there on the northern border. The, um, the um, dialogue between uh, Lukashenko and Putin, Putin desperately trying to get Lukashenko to um, support him in some military fashion, and Lukashenko realising that perhaps it's not a good idea for him to retain power because there's a, a there's a very strong possibility that his people will turn on him if he tries to do that. And that's another story. I've gone offline slightly there, but it, you know, <laughs> no, I think it's very... in my head. <laughs> I think it's very important. I mean, um, there's a number of interesting things happened since we since we spoke, and you know, one Russian historian who um, has often been unfortunately correct because some of his predictions have been absolutely horrific ones is Yuri uh, Felshtinsky. And he's very firmly of the belief that if Putin feels he can get away with some kind of nuclear strike, um, he would launch it from the territory of Belarus. Um, I mean, it's not really very plausibly deniable, but he thinks it may give him plausible deniability. Um, I kind of myself think it's not going to come to that and the Chinese have lent on him. But I do believe that, and I'm kind of surprised that Ukraine has not tried to do this. I believe Lukashenko will fall the minute Putin falls. Mm. Um, and the next front line of the expansion of you know European values eastward will come to include Belarus in a couple of years. And that, of course, will freak the Russians out because then two out of the three entities which they see as foundational for the Russian Empire you know, I believe will 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 end up being in in NATO and the EU, um, and and geographically you can see that 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 provides yeah. then quite a nice nice neat frontier between oh, sure. Europe and Russia. Yeah. Well, Russia will eventually become Russia again, and the um, all the buffer states of the Soviet Union will have gone, and um, 
personally, I feel that's that's got to be a good thing. Um, as far as the use of tactical nukes is concerned, I think that Joe Biden and his government have come out very, very strongly and made it very, very clear that the consequences of such an action would be um, devastating for Russia. Um, whether that's convention, and probably conventionally initially, but um, perhaps the response to that would be, okay, we will now commit NATO to um, defending Ukraine. Um, so you cannot win that way. And uh, David Petraeus and Ben Hodges have come out quite strongly and said, a tactical nuke will not change the battlefield. It'll change world opinion dramatically against Russia. India and China will then turn around and go, right, that's it, you, you're done, we're done with you. So not, not, not a wise move, from my opinion, in any shape or form. I don't think it can do anything positive for them. No, no. And they've already tried to weaponize, you know, the nuclear power stations that backfired. They got a huge amount of pushback um, when they were doing that. Um, well, let's let's turn to one of the more practical challenges uh, that Ukraine had when it rapidly took that territory in um, not Kherson so much, but in Kharkiv. They were retaking territory probably far faster than they'd expected. And they very quickly, their supply lines became stretched. Their troops became exhausted. How do you think Ukraine is planning to avoid that if they do manage to make rapid uh, advances in the coming offensive? Yeah, they're, they're, their commanders are well, well aware of the logistical complications of resupplying an advancing army. So they'll have a limit of exploitation. And... Um, they will have waves going forward um, and plans in place to supply those logistics, ammunition, water, food, fuel, and so on. Um, but there'll be a limit of, ex limit of exploitation. And um, when they achieve that, they'll stop them. And the reason they stop them is because tanks are no good without fuel. Tanks are no good without soldiers are no good without ammunition or food. And so that will be established quite clearly what their objectives are. And they, They'll be limited. They have to be limited, but they also have to be of strategic value as well. Up in Herzon and um, down in um, um, down at Herzon and up in Hachi, they um, they had a limit of exploitation. They stopped at a certain point and they held that ground very very successfully. Um, where they where they where they go next um, as 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 has got limits. Um, the crucial thing will be um, breaking through the enemy front lines, creating mayhem behind their front lines, rolling them up from the flanks, having good air support, having a lot of mobile artillery to keep supporting people, and then, and then hoping for a collapse of the Russian army. And say so they may actually vacate an awful lot of land as they, as they cut off their logistics. I mean, soldiers... Uh, on the Russian side, without their supplies, are going to simply become prisoners. And so what effect will that have? And politically, will that be enough to um, bring Putin down? He's a dictator. Um, he rules with fear. Um, who knows? Who knows where that will lead? But first, as I've said earlier, they have to win the military campaign. They have to win the war. And that, that just just sort of two questions left. One of these is, relates to what you've just said there, and it 
to pull off such a campaign, it suggests that Ukraine will have had to, broadly speaking, you know, master this combined arms technique, which the Russians have singularly shown that they cannot do. We've seen so many videos and descriptions of them not really using their equipment properly, the tanks not in proper formation, uh, not being supported by infantry. They, they just, even where they have the equipment, they don't seem to sort of use it in any kind of strategic way. Do you think the Ukrainians have been able to disseminate this knowledge deeply and broadly enough across their forces to really take advantage of those techniques? Yeah, they do. I mean, uh, since 2014, or maybe even before that, they'd already started to move towards the Western uh, system of warfare, of, dele of uh, delegating responsibility, of relying on the initiative of junior ranks to make decisions in combat. Um, whereas the Russians, the last war the Russians were, uh, real war the Russians were involved in was, um, was the Second World War. And um, their systems there were simply uh, a system of attrition to keep pouring more and more people and our armor into a situation and overwhelm the enemy in the end and prepared to take um, losses of 30 million people in order to take Berlin. And it didn't matter how superior the German technology was or how superior the German soldier was, eventually it just swamped them. But they stayed with that. Well, the technology's moved on and the military science has moved on. And we've maintained, uh, the Americans have maintained West Point and uh, other college, military colleges. We've still had Sandhurst. Uh, the uh, Europeans have uh, got their own military colleges. And military science has been taught to um, almost all the senior officers in those combined armed forces of NATO's over many years, NATO over many years. So... They're far better prepared tactically and strategically to win this war and to know what their advantages are and use them effectively. And because the Russians are so damn predictable. Um, there's nothing there's no, nothing new has happened with them in the last uh, in the last 12 months. Nothing new has come out. They haven't changed. The combined operations of uh, infantry, armor, artillery and air is what's going to create focus the strength to punch through the Russian lines and to keep going. It takes an awful lot of money, an awful lot of fuel, and it's going to take an awful lot of Ukrainian blood as well. And we've got to respect them for that because uh, we're giving them their we're giving them our treasure, and they're giving us their blood. And um, you know we've got to admire and respect them for everything they're doing. And it's 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 uh, they're they're very good at um, not letting the scale of their losses and pain uh, either degrade their confidence or from a from a news management point of view, they have been incredibly tight at not letting those stories come out. But if you're connected, say on Facebook, to hundreds of Ukrainians as I am, and I watch the sort of stories of individuals. You can see that that every single day there are funerals taking place. Mm -hmm. You can see that every family has someone in service or will nerve someone who's lost. And also you get this sort of sense of, of big names, you know, writers, poets, musicians, artists, again, on a weekly basis, um, you know, some significant cultural or scientific or educational figure 
from Ukrainian life, it'll be announced that they they died at the front. So, you know, it's it's not statistical, as it were, but it does give you the impression of tremendous losses. And these are Ukraine's best people, whereas we know the Russians are not sending their best people yet. Well, the Russians, have, uh, the best people in Russia, have already evacuated the country and run across the border. Yeah. Um, those that aren't dead, it's it's heartbreaking the sacrifice that Ukraine has been forced to make because of weak politics in the West over the last decade and um, because of the tyranny of Vladimir Putin. Um, and they deserve all our support, not just for the last year, but for the years to come. And when this war is won, they'll need our support to rebuild their country as well. And um, and we should be there for them for that, uh, and including Ukraine into into NATO, not only uh, completes that buffer zone, but um, it Finland and Sweden coming in is Finland already in Sweden too coming has made the Baltic a NATO sea, and um, the defeat of Vladimir Putin and the um, recovery of Crimea will make the Black Sea uh, a NATO sea as well. Um, so there's an awful lot to be gained strategically for the West by continuing to support Ukraine, not just against tyranny, not just against the wickedness of uh, Vladimir Putin, but also for our security and futures as well. And my last question really relates to that, and I know I've asked you on both of our previous interviews, but I just think it's something that the West cannot be weak on, and that is the prosecution of war crimes. Mm -hmm. um, and my biggest fear is that Ukraine will win, but we will fail to follow through and hold those who've committed crimes to account. The first time we spoke, uh, I think the atrocities of Butcher were coming to light, the second time we spoke, the torture chambers of Kherson were coming to light. And in the last couple of days, we've been hearing confessions of Wagner officers about sort of, uh, well, I mean, no no better than the Waffen-SS, essentially. I mean, extreme atrocities of yeah. utter brutality. Um, let, let's end on this. I mean, what do we need to do to make sure that eventually every one of these criminals is held to account? Well, back to my first premise, we must win the war. Because without winning the war, you have no leverage to get people to the Hague. And uh, a defeated Russia will want an awful lot of support from the West. They'll want the banking system back in line. They'll want to rebuild their economy. They'll want to sell their fuel again. And the price of that should be, okay, we can do that, but we want these people arrested and we want them sent to Holland and we want to be able to try them and lock them up. I mean, the uh, recent massacres, massacre is a correct word in this particular case, that were admitted to by these two Wagner commanders that were given pardons by Vladimir Putin, by the way, um, included the massacre of children as young as five deliberately and knowingly being ordered to do that by Progrosian. You know, there's no there's no soldiers in the heat of battle or throwing grenades into a room and making a mistake. These people were deliberately 
murdered and executed according to these these um, these commanders and their statements. And um, if we don't hold them to account when we have the power to do so, then it's uh, it's an appalling statement as to what the West are prepared to let go. But we have also seen the West, uh, America particularly, um, accept the murder of um, um, of a uh, American Saudi Arabian who was taken, chopped to pieces, and then shipped out of an embassy. You know, I mean, that's um, that's just uh, unacceptable. And everybody in the world knows who did it. They know who was behind it, and yet he's still in charge of that country. And you know that that's the kind of standards that um, once we show that we're prepared to do what's expedient rather than what's right, everybody has a price and everybody can be bought and there are no principles to found our future on to, there's no standards of decency for our children to move forward with, um, our education systems and everything else. Um, everything will just rely around who gets away with it and okay, it's okay to do it providing nobody knows. Oh, it's real politics and there's nothing we can do. Well, yes, there is, providing somebody has got the guts and the balls and the decency to stand up and say so. And that gives fuel to Russian propaganda. I mean, we absolutely should not uh, let Russian propaganda and propagandists off the hook. But where we have sort of grotesquely hypocritical uh, actions on our part, mm. and, of course, the, uh, the moral... Um, you know, we lost a lot of moral high ground from the the Second mm -hmm. Gulf War uh, when the WMD yeah. was shown to 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 not exist, and we have to regain that, uh, as you say, by living our values. And uh, you know, conversation I've had over the last twelve months looked into many many techniques of how to counter propaganda and disinformation, mm -hmm. and and come to the conclusion that yes, you, you adopt all of these things, including media literacy. But the number one, the number one way to counter authoritarianism is to live your values and not not be hypocritical to them yeah decent core values um that you're prepared to stand up and and say no when all your peer group are saying yes or this is the wise thing to do or this is the expedient thing to do um know what your core values are because that's what integrity is based on it's based on your core values and if you don't have them, and if you're not prepared to stand on them as a leader, as a as a government, as an individual, then really you don't have anything. Um, you don't have anything to build your your character on. Um, and I think we've been lacking character and integrity and dignity in most of the leaders in the Western powers for a long, long time now. That's an incredibly strong place to to end on. I hope the next time we speak, Ukraine will have made significant uh, inroads uh, into the occupied territories. But as always, been it's a huge thrill and a privilege to speak to you, uh, Robin. And I really encourage people to read your book because it is absolutely inspiring. And go and hear you speak because I know you do a lot of uh, speaking speaking events as well. But thank you so much and uh, Slavo Ukraini. Pleasure talking to you again, John.